Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Modern Nonprofit Fundraiser Podcast. We interview the top nonprofit fundraisers and marketers in order to provide you with practical insights for increasing generosity. You can learn more by going to virtuouscrm.com. And now, let's turn it over to our host. Hey, everybody. Uh, Today, I'm really pleased to have Larry Johnson on the podcast with us. Larry is a fundraising professional. He's a big believer in the power of relationships to drive philanthropy. Uh, He's also a philanthropy coach. He's a thought leader. He's an author. He wrote the award-winning book, The Eight Principles of Sustainable Fundraising. And I just found out that he's working on a great new book for kids on giving and philanthropy. Uh, Larry and his wife, Connie, live in Boise, Idaho. They spend a lot of their time outdoors, hiking, horseback riding, skiing, and uh, who wouldn't if you lived in Idaho? So, Larry, uh, thanks so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure, Gabe. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I'd like to get just kind of a little bit of background before uh, we get started, just to give our listeners context for how you got into fundraising. So, kind of give us your backstory a little bit. How'd you get started in the world of fundraising? Well, I, um, my first career stops were in corporate life. I did project management for Westinghouse Electric. And, but on the side, as a volunteer, I was involved pretty heavily in the Alumni Association of my alma mater. And at one point, you know, someone said to me, you can do this for a living. That, will, that was a revelation. Um, and through a series of, uh, of introductions, I was introduced to the senior executives at Ketchum, which at that time was one of the leading fundraising consulting firms in the country. And uh, we had some conversations, and I had a wonderful opportunity laid before me. They uh, brought me on to staff, and for the first 18 months or so, excuse me, I wasn't even generating a fee. They were putting me in mentorship of some of the key and senior people. And that has really shaped my whole view of philanthropy and how I do that. And so I worked for them for seven years before getting into higher education, um, where I served as vice president, chief advancement officer for four institutions. Um, I had enough of higher ed, um, founded my own firm about 12 years ago, and book six or eight years ago, I think it is now, uh, six years ago, I guess, and uh, I'm building an educational platform now for nonprofits and for nonprofit providers. I'm having a blast. Yeah, that's great. And it's a, an amazing opportunity, actually, to start with somebody like Ketchum to be able to learn under other good fundraisers. Most people in our space aren't given that sort of blessing coming into it. So that's, that's amazing. So you've been at it for a while now. I'd love to hear a little bit about what fundraising was like when you, you first got uh, started. And then kind of as a follow-up to that, how have you seen it change over the last 15, 20 years? Well, it, you know, I think the biggest change is that the expectations at the top levels of giving or what they were when I began have now drifted down into the very modest gifts. And let me tell you what I mean by that. Uh, I did a lot of my work in capital fundraising, um, in the quote, major gifts world, unquote. I work with uh, some very significant people with very significant means and very serious motives about their philanthropy. And of course, they were interested in outcomes. They were interested in the shape of what the effect their gifts have on others. And so at that time, you would begin to get those kinds of questions from donors if they were considering a gift of at least $100,000. Now, what I've seen change over time is that 
those modest gifts, even down to $50, donors, especially the young donors, the millennial donors, are beginning to ask those questions and make those demands. And that is something that a lot of nonprofits, at least the ones that I've seen, that I've seen, they're totally unprepared for. Because their their paradigm, the, the way they approach their giving, is very transactional. And as a result of that, um, you're seeing a lot of donor fatigue. You're seeing people be um, sort of change loyalties very rapidly. Millennials especially are doing that. And that's, I think, the biggest change is that the reasons for giving, the demands that are being made by donors have changed. And many times the nonprofit, although well-meaning, has not prepared for that change. Yeah, that's that's amazing. It's so much of that stuff is what we're preaching week in and week out. But man, I think you're absolutely right, especially the, the millennial donor. Not only do they want that level of transparency to the impact that's happening in the field, the way that only maybe a $100,000 donor would 20 years ago, now that $50 donor wants it. But then they want to give more than just their money now too. They want to give their time. They want to, you know, maybe post something on social. It's, it's, it's a way more sort of all encompassing deal. So anyway, I just wanted to reiterate what you said, because I think it's, um, nonprofits have to get this if they haven't already. So that's great. Well, and it's why I tend to, the, the language I use now, I, I do use the word, the conventional language, but I try to use words like, for instance, um, uh, investors as opposed to donors. You know, mm. People are investing in you and, and they're expecting, a, um, they're expecting um, a return. It's just not a financial return. There's yeah. the difference. And, and, and nonprofits don't understand that a lot. They see it only as a monetary transaction, and that's not what it is. And in the case of millennials, they want to be more than investors. They want to be your partner, as you yeah. said. They want to be doing stuff as well as giving resources. It's, it's a partnership that they envision. And you, the, the nonprofits that are doing very well with millennials have learned this, and they're, they're incorporating them in a way that's meaningful. And, you know, I did a lot of my work with volunteers at Catch and that's how I got started. And volunteers are very powerful if they're used in the right way. But many, many organizations are not prepared for that. They much prefer a staff-driven approach. And this is also one of the points of friction. Oh, that's great. You know, this is, this is even a little bit kind of off script for what I want to talk to you about. But what have you seen in terms of, of what organizations have done well to begin to create that transparency that you need and to begin to communicate those outcomes to even millennial donors? Have you seen anything that's worked at organizations that, that sort of creates that culture shift? Well, I, an organization that comes to mind um, when, when, whenever this question is asked is one that's fairly new. It's only about, I guess, 20 years old now. But it was started by a young person, a new college graduate who came with no resources of her own to the picture. She had a concept and she went about it in what I would call the classically good way to do it. She uh, surrounded herself with a small group of very committed people who had both influence and some resources to help her start. And then from that, she reached out, always maintaining that highly relational model. And today it's grown into a very successfully nationally known nonprofit, and you would know it as Teach for America. Sure. And Wendy, Wendy Kopp started that concept. 
And uh, she never approached it from a transactional piece. She always approached it from an inside out, what Seth Godin would call permission marketing piece. Yep. And then a lot of her donors are also the people who, uh, who start as being, you know, people in her, in her program who actually go out and teach and then they come back and they do other careers and they become donors. I mean, she's almost been in it a generation now. So, you know, this thing is generational. Once you've been into it 20 years, you began to really reap some of the benefits of all the seeds that you planted. And that's when a large gift program, an asset giving program really begins to take off. No, yeah, that's amazing. It's a great example. And I think uh, organizations like Teach for America that have done a good job keeping a very short distance between their donor and their program and the two just blend together sometimes. Uh, yes. That's, it's, it, it completely changes the nature of fundraising, especially in 2017. So I love that. Um, okay. So uh, I'm kind of interested a little bit in hearing uh, what you're working on now. I know you got a couple of cool projects underway, not just writing, but some more technical hands-on stuff. So uh, can you tell me a little bit about the stuff you're working on right now? Well, what we've been doing, I guess, for uh, several years is, and it's beginning to come to fruition now, is we're building an educational platform for strategic fund development. Um, in the space now, you have uh, the, the tools people that would include virtuous people that provide tools to do things with. Then on the other side, you have the traditional consultant or coach that usually is a in-person or through a telephone connection where they're giving you guidance day to day. But there, and, and then there are a handful of what I call academic fundraising type programs. But there's really nothing in the space that seeks to grow this paradigm in a very participative way uh, and how adults learn. And that makes it accessible to both volunteer and professional alike. So I think I like to think what we're doing is building that platform so that we're making it simple, but we're not removing any of the sophistication. It would be much like sitting in front of your Apple computer and, and there's this beautiful uh, Windows display. It's very intuitive and very easy to use, but all the complexities behind the screen. And so we're beginning to build that platform. We have a full-blown online digital training platform now for those. It all mobily adapts. I'm always focused on the young people. Um, and then we have a series of very highly interactive workshops that either could be delivered by a consultant, by us, or the organization itself can get the license and do it on their own to build their own culture. And so, and, and then I have one other project I, I can't quite speak of yet, but it will go live in the spring and I'm pretty excited about that. But what we're trying to do ultimately is what I would call democratize fundraising. When I worked for Ketchum, you know, I learned very quickly that it's more about the way you're thinking than what you're doing to be successful. And people pay a great deal of money for the large consulting firms to come in and more or less tell them that very same thing. Yeah. And unfortunately, their, their fee structure, their price point is at a point that it eliminates all but five or 6% of the nonprofits. And what I want to do is make that way of thinking, make that approach available to virtually everyone. Because it's not a question of whether you're the big guy or the little guy. Everyone starts as a little guy. The question is what attitude, what approach are you bringing to the table? And that will determine your level of success. So that's really what I'm about. And so, yeah, I'm working on, uh, the, we got the MOOC thing going on. We got the live workshops. Uh, there's one other project that I, that's going to hit the, hit the street in the spring. And I'm really excited about that. So just stay tuned. We're, 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 we're trying to disrupt the market a little bit and make things more available and do things in a different way. Yeah. No, that's, I, I can't tell you how big the need is for the kind of stuff that you're doing. Uh, I'm, 
it's painfully obvious if you get a job as a development rep for the first time at a smaller organization, because you're right, basically you can learn this stuff working at a really big agency or not learn it at all. I mean, just go to Amazon and Google, you know, books on fundraising and there's, you know, people read the same three titles and they're not bad books, but the same three titles that they've been reading for the last 30 years. There's really no like modern um, democratized learning platform. So if you get in one of these jobs, you kind of host unless you came out of one of the big agencies. So I, it's yes. just, it's a massive need. Yes. Yes. Um, so we're, we're trying to meet that need, quite frankly, and it's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Um, okay. So uh, you've been um, sort of talking to a bunch of different orgs, uh, obviously learning on the agency side within the organization, um, within organizations kind of working from the inside out and then now trying to educate. So just for our listeners, cause this would be helpful. What are the most common mistakes that you've seen a lot of your chief development officers, you know, VP of development, these kind of guys, what are the big mistakes that you've seen them make over the years? Um, you know, I think they're, they're pretty consistent. Uh, when people are having trouble raising money, uh, there are usually two or three things that are operating. Uh, number one would be they see it as a transaction versus a relationship. Mm. Um, and what I mean by that is your donors are really your investors and they are looking for a return. It's just not a financial one like it would be in, in the business world. And if you're not providing that return, especially in today's very competitive market with short attention spans, you're going to pay that price. And then the other thing that I see, which really affects the large gifts uh, more than anything is, um, and this is there again, it's not a question of what your mission is or how worthy your cause is or anything like that. It's really the way you're relating to these people with resources is that many of those in the fundraising world, and I guess I was no exception to that till I was enlightened, uh, we come to the table with what I would call a dysfunctional view of money. Uh, and that's harming the way we interact with other people. Uh, it's, it's, it's really stilting it. We often bring moral qualities to money uh, or we have an emotional content to money. Um, money is simply a tool, it's value free. And uh, when we can extract ourselves from that and then approach the individual as an individual who's seeking to achieve an outcome, then a whole new world opens. And so I'd say it was those two things consistently. Whether And I've seen large programs be this way, where especially, you know, you get in some of these large programs that have many, many calling officers in the field. They've got very high productive production requirements. It's all focused on money. And it becomes a race to the bottom. Yep. And uh, th this is not good. And donors are getting less and less uh, uh, patient with this approach. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's honestly... Donors get fatigued, but it's no fun if you're a fundraising professional either. I mean, it's just a, the transactional side. It's This is why, you know, fundraising professionals average lifespan is 18 months or whatever it is now. It's just exceptionally low because people get burnt out mm -hmm. just chasing transactions uh, as opposed to actually making a difference and building relationships. Well, what better, what better profession could you be in? than to be able to help someone, and I mean a donor here, not your organization, achieve personal fulfillment through their That's right. What That's joy right. that is to see that happen. Let me give you one example. Um, I, um, I worked uh, as, a, as a, 
as a calling officer with um, a founder of one of uh, America's leading tech firms. And you would know the firm and probably the name if I mentioned it. And I met this man when he was uh, near the end of his career and um, we got to know one another. And I, he knew why I was there. I was there to, to, to work with him for a major investment in his alma mater. And, um, and we got a good relationship going. But at one point he said to me, you know, I have a real problem with giving you a significant gift. Well, when someone says that to me, the conventional thoughts are, okay, so I've said something wrong. He doesn't like the president. There's the student newspaper, all the conventional sorts of reasons why I don't or wouldn't do this. Yep. So I said, well, so, so can you tell me why? And his answer absolutely bowed me over, bowled me over, excuse me. He said, I'm afraid if I do this, you'll never come back and see me again. <laughs> that's great. And that speaks to the heart, man. That's yeah. great. I mean, this is a man who, you know, had incredible resources. It was, in, I was invited to his home. He invited my family there in Silicon Valley. Um, I mean, you would, but my point is that wasn't really his need. His need was for a relationship. relationship. That was that's right. No, I, I love that. Yeah. And, and that is so often, it all bleeds together through donors. It's, it's the relationship with who you know at the organization. It's your relationship to people impacted by the organization. We always say, think of the last four or five times you gave to charity. And I can almost guarantee in every case, you knew somebody who worked or volunteered at that organization, or you have a very personal connection there. Correct. That's just what drives giving it. It just does. And that's not bad. I mean, the, the fact that we mm. give to things close to our heart and that we're relationally connected to, that's just how we're wired. And so it's okay to embrace that. Fundraising is very much a flesh and blood enterprise. Um, uh, the tech tools help, but they don't replace it. That's right. No, that's right. Um, okay. Th this has been incredibly helpful. Uh, I think um, our folks are going to get a ton out of some of your insights here. I do like to finish these out with kind of a little lightning round of questions. So, I have a couple of questions I want to blow through really quick with you. Is that okay? Sure. All right, let's do it. So uh, typically, um, if you're in this world of fundraising, it's running really, really fast and you get burnout really easy. So how do you kind of stave off burnout? What do you do to keep yourself sane? Uh, well, first of all, you know, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a physical, mental, spiritual triad for me. Um, I do my morning devotion. Um, I am always up at the gym early. Um, for an old guy, I think I'm doing pretty well. The last year I put on 20 pounds of muscle. Wow. Uh, I, have, I, have, I do a lot of reading. One thing I've discovered with donors is they're voracious readers, especially the high-end donors. And I read a lot of fiction as well as nonfiction. And then I, it's, it's like keeping it, everything in balance. And remembering that I just have to stop at some points. Yeah. No, and that's hard. It's easier said than done to stop. Yes, it is. Um, what, do you, uh, what do you do when you're not teaching fundraisers, when you're not kind of doing the work around uh, philanthropy and thought leadership? What do you do for fun? Well, what I do for fun, I love having people over at the house. I'm a cook. Um, I have a motorcycle, I have a Harley. It's a fat boy. Uh, wow. That was one of the things I promised myself when I moved out West. It's great. <laughs> I love it. I have a motorcycle buddy and we take uh, multiple week trips all around the Rockies together. Um, and then I, uh, my wife and I have trail horses. Uh, we go up into Montana and then of course into central Idaho with those. And then I'm, I'm lucky to live in town, but have enough property. I have a nice big tree house and a century old willow. And I like to get in there in an afternoon and, and read a book. And then of course at five o'clock is cocktail hour. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think I think you may have just described my perfect day. That sounds amazing. <laughs> That's I'm not a cool. golfer. Sorry. Some people like golf, and and in April here in the valley, you can ski in the morning and golf in the afternoon. Uh, that's really how what it's like. We, I, we live in a what's known as a high desert, so we get 300 days of sun a year, even though we do get four uh, seasons. And I'm within two hours of Sun Valley, uh, the, the the ski resort. Wow. Yeah, that really sounds amazing at every level. That's pretty great. Um, okay, just last one real quick here. Uh, best book, you're a voracious reader, and so best book and or podcast that you've consumed in the last year? Hmm. Best book. I just, um, I'm thinking, hmm. well, I would think it has to be a business book called Simplify, and it's written by Richard Koch, and, uh, or Koch, how do you pronounce that, and Greg Lockwood. And he talks about how the most successful businesses in the world have, what they've done is they've either simplified the price through different ways of production, or they've simplified the proposition, meaning that they changed the way things have been delivered. And two proposition simplifications that come to mind would be uh, both uh, Apple and Uber, and a, a, a price simplification would be McDonald's. Uh, but it's fascinating that people strive towards simplification. And one of the things that, I, that frustrates me about my business is that there's a whole sort of sector of my, of my profession that relishes in complexity. And that really <laughs> drives me nuts. It just drives me nuts because what we're doing is not, is not complex. Uh, it can be fairly sophisticated and nuanced, but it's not complex. Yeah, yeah that's great. And for non, nonprofits, they, a lot of times there's no market forcing them to say no to things and so yes. <laughs> there's you know there's you can just keep adding keep adding keep adding and and before too long you don't know who you are your donors don't know who you are and you're sort of not even serving the purpose anymore and so i love that idea of just forcing functions to make you make hard decisions to make the complex simple and so that's i think that's a great book it uh, is it's a good read too it's it's well written it's it's not full of a lot of jargon or techno speak that's great. Well, Larry, it's it's been a blast having you on. Uh, I really do think um, so much of what you think about and talk about is is so close to my heart and the heart of our team here. And so I think it's going to be huge for our listeners too. So thanks so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. It was my pleasure, Gabe. To learn more or to subscribe to the Modern Nonprofit Fundraiser podcast, visit virtuouscrm.com.